Welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group, which is the uh, publishers of the Southampton Press's two editions, the East Hampton Press, uh, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. With me today is a panel of guests uh, along with my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning. And our panelist includes three uh, of the best journalists on the East End, no question. Uh, I have Chrissy Sampson, who's the deputy managing editor at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Good morning. Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Hi Denise. Good morning. And Beth Young, editor of uh, the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Morning, Joe. Good, solid panel to talk about some of the issues that we're all writing about uh, in the the most recent week or two. Uh, I think a good place to start is with the topic that dominates the news in everybody's uh, world right now, and that's COVID-19. And particularly with schools, I think that's been a a, a big focus uh, lately. We talked last week a little bit about COVID in schools and school sports, but the effect on schools has been more significant than that pretty clearly, and the schools have all been dealing with this issue in different ways. Christy, this has been a big topic for you to write about at the East Hampton Star. The schools have actually had quite a bit of success in keeping a cap on the spread of COVID-19 within the classrooms. Fair? That's actually very fair to say. In a conversation earlier this week, I had with Wendy Gearing, who is the COVID-19 coordinator and school nurse with East Hampton School District. You know, she is continually saying that their contact tracing efforts show that any students really are not contracting it at school. Those students who do test positive are uh, contracting COVID-19 outside school in interactions with friends or social gatherings. So there is really very little to no evidence on the East Ends that COVID is spreading in the schools because of something the schools are doing or not doing. I think that happened in East Hampton earlier, right? There was a there was a big outbreak around the turn of the year, but it turned out to be traced to a party yeah. uh, that a bunch of teens attended, uh, not anything that happened in school. Yeah, actually, there were two instances. One was earlier in the school year and then then the one right around the holidays. Denise, how's uh, the situation up your way on in Riverhead and on the North Fork? You know, I was just looking. um, I've been keeping a spreadsheet with the numbers by uh, school and date because they do a a, like a daily report to the school community. And um, they have reported since Christmas vacation anyway, um, 146 um, positive cases throughout the district. Um, And they had obviously they had some before that, but this. This was significant. The reason I started keeping track of this because they went back to uh, in-person instruction in December. Um, And I was interested in seeing if that had any kind of, uh, you know, impact. And it really, I mean, 146 out of like over 7,000, I think, in the district. Um, I hope I have that number right. But, um, you know, it's obviously a pretty low, a pretty low number. Um, they have uh, implemented uh, plastic shields. I was interested in what other districts are doing. They, they put the plastic shields up on um, the kids' desks. And uh, so they have um, all of the uh, K to six at this point, I think, are back in school in person uh, four days a week. They still have Wednesdays without any in-person instruction. Um, and then they've got 
um, two cohorts of kids in the middle school and in the um, in the high school. It's amazing to me. We've we've used the analogy a hundred times, but it's like building the airplane while you're flying it. Uh, these districts, <laughs> yeah. they did they did a great job in putting together. I mean, you talked about some of the Denise. You, you talked about some of the different elements that that you need the cohorts and the working from home and and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Beth, it's it's been a demonstration that if you take the necessary steps, you really can keep. The, the level of transmission well below what we're seeing in the surrounding community. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that doesn't really get as much attention is the contract tra contact tracing work being done by the schools. Um, my niece is a junior at, at Riverhead and uh, she's been quarantined twice already this year, um, never got sick. Um, but, um, you know, they find, th they know where everybody is because of the cohorts and they really, you know, make sure this to, stop it before it starts spreading. Um, but uh, up on the North Fork, Southold had a, a wake up call very early on. Um, they brought all the teachers in for a big um, teachers meeting before school was supposed to start everybody in the same room. And um, a couple of the, the staff members were sick and they had to quarantine everybody who was at that meeting before school Goodness. even started. Wow. So uh, they really learned the hard way that you have to take this very seriously. And we did, as I said, we talked about it last week, Bill, but, but a little more news this week about the school sports uh, getting back underway. And we did see some issues with uh, schools that have started allowing the high-risk school sports, basketball and wrestling. And we saw some outbreaks as a result of that. Well, some positives. Yeah, I think there's there 16 school districts right now in Suffolk County that um, that had to quarantine um, their, their sports teams due to due to either either um i don't know if it was people being sick or just close contact or 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 whatever there was um one one sports team that, that played a local team that apparently they hadn't um been doing the the testing that they were required to do before showing up and some of those players had tested positive which put a big scare into one of the local teams um, so it goes back to what you said, Joe. If, if you're if you're taking the precautions and doing the right things, maybe you're okay. But you need to be really careful to to do that. I, I imagine that one team, um, hopefully, will um, will we'll start doing what they need to do to to be able to play. I think the jury's still out on on the on the sports on the high risk sports. Um, they're going to continue to try um, to try to follow through with a, with a short season um, basketball and wrestling. Um, obviously, some districts have opted out. Sag Harbor has opted out of, of of both of those, and I think East Hampton opted out of out of wrestling. Um, we'll we'll see what happens with that. That is accurate. It's and I was in a conversation earlier this week with the East Hampton School District, uh, which, like you said, didn't opt into <clears> wrestling, but they're doing basketball. They had forty athletes test all test negative at East Hampton earlier this week. So that's a good sign. It shows you're starting from a baseline of safety. But um, I, and, and, you know, the other thing is, Bill, I think when, when we had a conversation on our podcast about this uh, this week uh, and that 
school district that didn't allow that that led to to all the positive uh, the the quarantining as a result of not conducting the tests that it was supposed to be done. That was an administrative issue. It wasn't the kids who refused the tests or right. the co- you know the coaches. It's about the adults who are in charge here. They they really do need uh, to 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 take the lead and and make sure everybody's safe. Christy, I know that the other thing in, in Pearson, uh, it's been a big. Uh, there's been a lot of friction about Jeff Nichols and uh, the superintendent there uh, in the Sac Harbor School District and the decision to keep uh, sports, to not play high-risk high sports. They're the only, dis- the only district, uh, I think, in Suffolk County that's doing that. Um, but this is a tough issue because you have teachers and parents and students. Can you, did you, have you got a gauge on how they're reacting to the, their worries about safety and how that balances with the desire to get back out and playing sports again? You have. Um, so Pearson has always had a very active contingent of athletes. Um, they have some very successful teams over the years at Pearson. And that's one of the reasons why there was such a backlash. Um, Mr. Nichols, um, had to stick, stick to his, his grounds to stay the course there with his decision not to opt into the high-risk sports. There was a petition among students and families that tried to get their decision reversed. He stuck by the science. And ultimately, you know, at Pearson, which has something like 500 in, in the four to 500 range of students, if I'm not mistaken, they, um, and, and about, 50 of them are athletes. So what you had to consider was, you know, the sports, not just for the high risk kids, the athletes, but how that would impact the rest of the school, because you have other kids and teachers who aren't taking part in sports. And all those kids go home to their their families and they're in the community and and all that. The other aspect is that, um, you know, some of the kids said at the school board meeting earlier this week, in fact, you know, hey, you let the theater kids do a production. Why aren't you letting high-risk sports do it? And the answer was that they were able to um, maintain that social distancing. Most of them were wearing masks, or there were only two or three of them on the entire stage at a time, whereas that's not the logistics of a sports contest. You know, in basketball, there's five people on each team, and you're in each other's faces. You know, you're exhaling, you're breathing around, you know, on the people around you because of the close nature of the contact, you know. Um, So the kids brought up that, you know, you you let the theater kids have their show, but we don't have our sports. But really, when you think about it, every kid has lost something, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's more than just the theater. There's robotics teams that last year they had a robot built and then their competitions got canceled. And that's a big, expensive and time intensive effort. Those robotics teams that couldn't compete, you know, so every really every kid has lost something, you know, since the start of the pandemic. And when you weigh the number of athletes as a percentage of the school student body as a whole, that's where you really have to look and see what decision would benefit, would impact the school the most. And that's what Jeff Nichols was really looking at, the science of it, the logistics of how many students there are versus athletes in, in particular, you know. 
Denise and Beth, have you guys um, seen this divide that, I mean, this does end up dividing the community in a lot of ways. You have you have proponents and opponents of, of things like getting back to sports. But I mean, it's, it's also true just of the classroom stuff, too. I, I think you have people who have differing opinions about um, how how much they want to push forward with uh, with getting back to something close to normal. Well, yeah, uh, Riverhead's in a unique position because um, they fit, the budget went down twice last year. So they didn't even have the option to go back to uh, sports. They had kind of a battle on the school board about whether to reallocate some money for sports. And they came up with a compromise and um, they're going back with clubs and sports beginning for the spring season. So beginning in March. Um, so they're not doing wrestling or basketball. Um, it was kind of providential to have that budget issue, right? This yeah, would be the year to have it if you're going to have it. Yeah. I mean, talk about, talk about, um, you know, building the airplane while you're flying. Uh, that was like another thing on, t on top of everything else, um, this year for Riverhead. It's been a rough year for the school, uh, administrators and parents and kids, most of all. So, yeah, absolutely. Beth. Yeah. And, and there's been so much controversy within the Riverhead community regarding like the money that the town wouldn't give the school and, uh, and, um, and wasn't there an issue everyone was raising about like, if they went to in-person learning that should have cost less and why doesn't the school give that money back to people? It got really ugly. It, it did. Yeah. I mean, the whole, starting with the budget vote last year was really pretty ugly. And, um, the, um, there was a lot of people um, blamed. It actually started before the budget vote because uh, when the capital bond went up and went down, um, there was you know just a lot of um, discussion in the community, a lot of finger pointing uh, with overcrowded housing uh, being uh, blamed for overcrowded schools. And of course that leads directly to okay, who's living in the overcredited housing? And, right. you know, there was just a lot of kind of thinly veiled um, accusations about, um, uh, you know, people living in illegal housing and, um, you know, pointing fingers essentially at uh, the Latino community, basically. I mean, you know, to be honest. And um, so the capital bond went down and um, then in the midst of the pandemic, the budget went down twice. Um, the first time everybody got that ballot mailed to them and it went down in a big way. And then the second, it was like a lot of residual anger, judging at least by what I saw on Facebook, not only on the Riverhead local Facebook page, but on some other group community pages that people started. And, um, and then a month or so later, uh, they had an in-person vote and it went down by 400 and something uh, votes. So, um, I don't know. It's been it's been a real challenge, and then there was a lot of uh, argument on 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 the school board itself among, among people on the board about you know whether there was actually money in the budget that could be allocated to sports um, because that was very important to you know the athletes and to some uh, school board members who are parents of athletes, and it was uh, you know it was pretty contentious, which usually. The school board meetings in most places are uh, pretty scripted. Riverhead is no exception to that until recently. So I would agree with that observation, Denise, that a lot of the river, the a lot of the school board conversations feel 
have that scripted feel to them where there isn't a lot of debate in a lot of cases. And, you know, that makes you wonder, um, you know, are there conversations happening elsewhere? I don't wonder about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would uh, bet anything on that. It, it's happening in board meetings before they come out and do the, you know, um, I wrote a column about that recently. And, but um, put a pin in that because we're going to circle back to that topic in <laughs> a little bit. We're going to we're going to cover that. But before we move on from this, I just want to ask what. So for the rest of the school year, do we expect status quo? This is just going to be the way it is from now. Do we expect any major changes in the way schools are adapting to the pandemic between now and the end of the school year? Or is this pretty much how the school year is going to wrap up? I well, think it's really hard to say, Joe, um, because there's so many shifting elements in play. You know, the one thing I wanted to mention back to sports a second ago is that there are a lot of pickup games and travel teams having sports anyway. So like you might have a pickup basketball game or you might have a travel lacrosse team in action. So whether or not, like if Sag Harbor didn't have, didn't, you know, Sag Harbor didn't opt into the sports program this winter, but you can be sure that there are still kids playing at Mashashamiwa Park or, you know, a travel field hockey or lacrosse team definitely playing or baseball played all summer last year. You know, so that's another consideration in the let them play movement. Um, well, but I, Bill, you, a lot of things, a lot of it's going to depend on the, on the numbers, right? I mean, you've got these, these scary COVID variants, um, you know, coming into play. And if, if the numbers, you know, go back up, um, you know, then, then the school districts, like everybody else, are going to have to have to adapt if they stay where they are now. I think we're in, in relatively good shape right now. We're about, what, 4%. I think that, you know, then you can keep going the way you're going with all the different safety measures. And, you know, we talked about it in the podcast, too, you know, back to the sports. In, in a few weeks, you get back to outdoor, you know, sports with the, you know, football and, you know, and the other, um, then the spring season, you know, after that, the two, two kind of quote unquote spring seasons coming up, you know, in March and, and then after that. Um, so, so, I mean, that's helpful to be playing outdoors, but it just always is going to come down to the numbers and it's going to come down to vaccinations too. And, and where we go with, um, you know, with those numbers, I think vaccinations are increasing. You're seeing, you know, hopefully there's going to be more availability, but, um, you know, right now, I mean, they keep pushing, I mean, we said it earlier, they, they keep expanding the, the groups of people who can get the vaccinations, but if there aren't any vaccinations to give out, what, you know, what, what good does that do? Um, but that's going to make a difference. If we can get more people vaccinated, get the teachers vaccinated, kids, parents vaccinated and their, you know, grandparents vaccinated and, you know, then, then that helps too. So this is behind the headlines. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. That was my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, we're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Denise Civiletti uh, of Riverhead Local, Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. So uh, the point of behind the headlines is to talk about local stories on the East End. I cannot think of a more local story than sand mines. Uh, having moved here from Western Pennsylvania about a quarter century ago, I had no idea what a sand mine would, what is, what is a sand mine? That makes no, those two words don't seem to go together to somebody who doesn't grow up out here. Uh, somebody explain succinctly 
uh, what a sand mine is. <laughs> who, who, who's the best equipped to do that? Uh, what's the point of a sand mine? Denise, you want to take it? I might have trouble with the succinct part, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, people need sand for a variety of things, but most importantly, to make uh, concrete. And we have a lot of sand on the east end of Long Island. And um, <clears throat> so basically, they dig a big hole. They take out the sand and then an important part, and this is the part that they actually, that the state actually issues a permit for, is the reclamation part. They have to reclaim that the sand mine. And what that means is they generally have to fill the hole up. And um, that can be done with a variety of, of things um, from uh, things like uh, clean construction and demolition debris to things like um, brush and, uh, you know, organic waste like uh, that uh, sandland mine. Um, That's annoying. And that needs to, um, for obvious reasons, that needs to be regulated. And the reason why this is a big concern is because everything, you know, we sit atop our sole source aquifer and um, whatever you put into a big hole in the ground can eventually, you know, it's an unlined hole, percolates down into the, the drinking water aquifer. So that's a, a very serious concern. And um, the area that's best uh, suited to uh, the sand that's best suited, at least at Riverhead, is in Calverton for the most part. And um, that also happens to be where the best drinking water aquifers are located. And um, so that's been it's been an ongoing issue. The state DEC is very pro. It's, it kind of sounds so uh, you know nonsensical and ironic, but they're very pro sand mine. Um, they um, it's it's they have it. So they have the environmental division. They also have the mineral resources division and the mineral resources folks are really, you know, advocates of, of sand mining. And, and I know um, there was a there was a site to the west of us uh, at Horseblock Road uh, up in that area where there was a study done by the DEC that showed that yard waste and those kinds of things in these old sand mines can be really devastating to the water supply. And I think that's been one of the guiding principles. Chrissy, there's some news on this I front, think. correct? Yeah, actually, um, in a couple of different places. So Southampton Town earlier this week held an open uh, a public hearing regarding a change to their mining law that would mandate at least three groundwater monitoring wells at each sand mine in Southampton Town. There are six of them, including Sandland in Noyak, um, which had its most recent inspection in August and passed everything um, that had not always been the case in the past. Um, but they actually have four ground monitoring, groundwater monitoring wells already. Um, and then Fred Thiel, our state assemblyman, has also um, introduced another piece of legislation aimed at um, you know, connecting those jurisdictions where the, um, it would get kicked up to the state DEC for an investigation, um, but local jurisdictions could have more say in, in monitoring the wells. And this has been a problem, right? The, the, every time uh, an issue is a, uh, arises with a sand mine, the problem is the, 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 it's a little unclear about who's responsible uh, for, for keeping, uh, keeping, keeping close watch on them. Fred, Fred Thiel had had legislation last year or the year before um, that would have given local municipalities and the DEC dual oversight of, of sand mines and it and it passed overwhelmingly in, in the 
in the two houses, but was vetoed by by the governor, who's who's pretty much come down on the side of the DEC um, all the time. So I, I think what Fred is doing now is he's he's introducing um, uh, smaller, if you will, uh, pieces of legislation to kind of piecemeal around that to to allow some more local control. Um, you know, without trying to reintroduce the the one big legislation that that was vetoed last year. And so that, it's it's kind of interesting what goes on because um, the, um, the the DEC has made it perfectly clear that they don't want to hear from the town on these things. I mean, at least at, at Riverhead, it's it's like they wouldn't let monitors Riverhead monitors on a site to see uh, what was being deposited in a hole in Calverton. This is going back many years. And um, even though, you know, it was literally in a special groundwater protection district uh, next to the compatible growth area of the Pine Barrens. Um, the, um, so there's an existing law that says that if that the DEC before reviewing an applicant, salmon reclamation permit, they have to ask, they have to inquire of the municipality whether sand mining is permitted in the municipality. And um, we've got a situation in Riverhead right now where um, that didn't happen. And the DEC just you know, ignored that. They didn't ask, it's PS, it's not permitted in Riverhead. Um, it, there is an existing mine that if it was gonna be expanded, which is what's going on now, they would need to get a, a, a special permit as a pre-existing non-conforming use under zoning. Um, and the DEC went ahead and processed this application and um, took it to the point of they, you know, they issued a complete application notice and they're, they're ready to issue the permit, essentially, um, without ever making that inquiry. The town challenged their lead agency declaration without getting too far into the weeds of the state environmental quality review law. But um, they, um, they did all of this for a sand mine that was goes back to the 1930s. It's 15 acres in a in in a special groundwater protection area, and the mine operator, who's the guy you're familiar with out in Southampton, <laughs> um, is digging plans to dig down to 89 feet below the water table, into the water table, 89 feet into the water table, and it's adjacent to the old Riverhead landfill which is capped and closed. And there's, you know, the town had all kinds of hydraulic data and stuff to say that, you know, th this activity is gonna draw pollution that's sitting underneath that, you know, pretty stable, but sitting underneath that landfill, that closed landfill is gonna suck it out into the groundwater table. And um, the DEC is just not hearing it. I mean, it's so, the town actually, you know, just recently brought a lawsuit and. I said it was like they were the most they were like the best legal papers I've ever read. <laughs> I was like cheering when I, as I was reading them. I know I'm a geek, but but seriously, like that, they, they, this guy did a really wonderful job. This is uh, the firm that Tom Bolt's law firm that's um, representing all the towns. River had joined that lawsuit as well um, because this is you know I mean this is the DEC's posture in this. This is the extent that they'll go to to advocate for you know, new or expanded sand mines. This is, I want to get Beth in here. Denise touched on it, but this is a, I mean, this seems like uh, 
a pretty mundane issue on the surface, but this is an issue that really stirs up a great deal of emotion. When you in dig residence. down deep into it, right, Joe? Yeah, if you dig down deep. <laughs> deep. Um, I mean, this this is a really important topic for a lot of East End residents, and and maybe you can help explain why. Well, our our groundwater is. Uh a finite resource and um mm -hmm. i mean i know on, uh, i mean there are a lot of ge geological reasons why s the best sand is where the best groundwater is um so right. that that's it's like you know right. nature set up this conflict for us and then the dec made it worse um i mean you don't find as many sand mines on the north fork um but what you do find here is um you know a lot of issues with potential water scarcity in not too much time here because uh, the aquifer here is shallower and um, covers less landmass than it does on the South Fork. And like areas like East Marion, Orient um, are having a huge problem with groundwater. And uh, one of the big problems with public water, I mean, public water is seen as a solution, but you're pumping public water from the area where there is a lot of it but the places where it's being used are near the surface waters because most of the history of our land, our, our residential land development is along the bays. So you're actually transporting this water much faster than it would be transported under natural circumstances. And it's entering the water body quicker. It's coming out of the aquifer quicker. And it's, it's just tightening these scarcity issues um, that we don't, Talk, we're going to be talking about more in the years to come. That's why everybody cares. Chris, you want to put a last word on the topic? Yeah, another um, aspect of that, I mean, Denise and Beth explained um, that the sand has, has uses, like Denise mentioned concrete. But there's also, if you go into East Hampton Town, um, sand replenishing at the beaches. I know there's some dredging work planned out here. But, you know, look at Ditch Plain. I sent you guys a photo. I don't know if you want to see the erosion at Ditch Plains um, in Montauk. But, you know, I was having a conversation with our town supervisor, Peter Van Skoyak, who said, you know, a few years back, there was sand that was incompatible because it wasn't local sand that was brought to the beaches to replenish. And it was orange and it looked completely out of place. Now the, the, you know, mother nature comes in and coastal erosion is a whole other topic that we can get into in the future. But, um, you know, local sand is important for many reasons. And that's why, you know, sand mining is, is such a controversial topic because there's so many aspects on, on either side of it, you know, mm -hmm. like you need sand, but where's the sand coming from and at what cost? It's a fascinating topic, no question. Yeah. This this is Behind the Headlines. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw of the Express News Group. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, uh, also of the Express News Group. And our panelists this week are Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Uh, Behind the Headlines is about talking to journalists about what goes on sort of uh, behind the stuff we talk about. So we're going to move into a topic that is near and dear to every journalist's heart, um, maybe maybe to the point of being a little dry for folks out there, but it shouldn't be. It's a really, really important topic, and that's the freedom of information law and the Sunshine Law, which is the, the shorthand term for the open meetings law in New York State. And it's 
they are two laws that are just absolutely essential for journalists doing their jobs. Uh, almost on a daily basis, these issues come up. They are meant for the public in general, and they, they are really designed for the public in general to have access to government information. But journalists are really the ones uh, where the rubber hits the road and, and we use them more than anyone. There's some news this week that we were able to report, and that is that Assemblyman Fred Thiel has introduced legislation in Albany that would actually add fines for people who, for officials who violate the open meetings law or who do not provide the uh, freedom of mission, when you submit a freedom of information law request for government documents, if they don't provide those documents appropriately, they can now actually be fined if this legislation becomes law. Um, I'm thrilled that, that this measure is going into place. And I'm really happy that, that Fred has said uh, some of this was, was actually jump-started by our fight with the Southampton School District when we were trying to get some documents related to uh, the departure of an administrator under some cloudy circumstances. And the, the, the takeaway from that fight was the school district had really no reason to follow the law, the, the attitude, and I'm sure you've all seen it. So when you file a freedom of information request, uh, it gets rejected. You appeal typically to the same person who rejected it the first time, they reject it a second time, your next step is just, well, take it to court. But taking it to court is just not an option for all of us. We just don't have those resources. So for the public, I mean, not even just us, if you think about absolutely, the, the, absolutely. You know, it. Absolutely. The, there are active members of the public who do that. So having some teeth in those laws, let's talk about why that is important. Guys, you, you fight these fights all the time. I mean, there's no enforcement mechanism in the law that as it exists. And there, the, the wording of it is so vague in some places. And there's so many loopholes like, you know, intra-agency and inter-agency materials are exempted. Well, how do you, def like, what's not an inter-agency, you know? <laughs> um, so having actually, uh, I mean, it would, some states have a state official that actually enforces the, the law. Uh, we don't have that in New York. Um, and it makes it really difficult. And if, it, by the way, it's not legal to have the same person be the appeals official. But if that's happening somewhere, you should complain about that. But, um, you know, it's supposed to be a different person, but it's still in the same entity, it's still in the same right. agency. Uh, exactly. So, you know, we've all hit our heads against the wall a lot. And, um, you know, there's just no, uh, they play all kinds of games. I mean, uh, you know, I had on that mind that we were talking about, I filed this uh, Freedom of Information request to the DEC in early October, and they just kept postponing when, you know, the law says they have to provide a response within five days, but they don't have to provide the information. They just have to say, we have this, and we think we'll get you the information on, you know, six weeks from now or whatever. It's got to be a reasonable time, supposedly. But then when, as that date approaches, they give you another date. And I didn't get the information till the end of January. And it was almost a moot point, but what I was looking for at that Our point. Our fight like, with the school district yeah. extended for years. It, it took years to get that resolved. Bill, this crosses, I mean, this is town, village, school district, police departments, it, it really is across the board, right? We, we, yeah, we any, fight any, these fights every day, practically. And any municipal organization. And, you know, the bottom line of this is, is it's, <clears throat> it's the public's right to know. 
I mean, that's what these laws are are supposed to be supporting. And 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 there's 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 reasons for that. You you want to avoid corruption. You want to avoid appearances of, of corruption. The the public, you know, the public elects these bodies as as representatives. If you have a village board, a school board, um, these these are representatives of, of the public. So we need to know what they're doing. As a newspaper, you know, we're reporting these things so that the public understands what these organizations, what these municipalities are are, are doing. And if and if we if we don't get that information, the public doesn't have that information. Um, you know, there's 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 always obstacles in 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 getting this information, having these these meetings open to the public. There's always these obstacles, and I think we've always said from day one, um, most of that is probably not nefarious. Most of that is probably organizational or or whatever. But you know, if the question arises, if we we you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, I mean, so. Um, who knows? Denise was talking earlier about about um, you know school boards or, or making making decisions behind closed doors or, or discussing issues behind closed doors. That's not allowed. I mean, if if it's that body has to if they're if they're considering um, you know some kind of change in policy, that has to be discussed in public so that the public understands the reasoning for it and 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 the money issue too. I mean. You know, a lot of these decisions have to do with a school budget or or a town budget, a village budget that's approved by by voters. Essentially, the school budgets, anyway. Um, I had, people uh, people I need to know. This. Sorry, what? Go ahead. I brushed up against this twice, literally this week. Um, I had two instances of school boards um, on the East End discussing a budget document with a quorum of board members on a public meeting, and I asked the district clerks for copies of those budget documents that had been discussed. And I was denied twice initially. Once the school board president on the meeting said, we can't give you this document because- It's a draft it's, document, right? Was it's that what? A draft document. A draft that, document. That's always and, their argument. And so I appealed, I received it. And then literally the same thing happened several days later in another district. I appealed. I received it, but it took a while. Yeah, you know? and these- we we had a similar situation with one of the one of the villages that that we cover, and um, I, I I see that as a success. Though I understand that that it put your re- reporting behind a little bit, and it put our reporting behind a little bit. But I feel like at that point we've then educated um, those groups and said no. You, you can't do that, and this is why. And we show them the law, or we show them previous decisions, or whatever. And hopefully, I'm being optimistic. Hopefully, in the future, then it makes it makes it clearer when we request those documents that that they need to supply it to us. And that's you know, it's, it's Denise, Denise is smirking at that. She, okay, she doesn't because, buy it. Uh, so, like several years ago, <laughs> I think it was about 2012. Um, Things were so bad between the Riverhead School District and the Riverhead Town Board and stuff. It was it was worse in this school district where a former school board president actually said to me, well, of course, we discuss these things behind closed doors. We don't want to look stupid, uh, you know, yeah. and Bob Freeman, the, who, the longtime executive director of the Committee on Open Government in New York State said, well, unfortunately, looking stupid is not an exemption for the to the open meetings law. Um, I remember. So I actually brought him down here to give a uh, 
in-person seminar on the open meetings, you know, stuff and, and records access for government officials. We did it at the Riverhead Library and um, it, we filled the room. They all came. Did it improve? Uh, maybe a little bit. But now we have a whole new school board and um, yeah. the same things are going on. I mean, they were just they were very clearly discussing whether or not to reallocate money and how much to cover sports last about a month ago. And they came out and they clearly had this discussion behind closed doors. And so that's when I wrote my most recent column about this. <laughs> and then to the next school board meeting, they had their lawyers say, oh, no, we weren't. They weren't doing that. I was giving them legal advice. That's another uh, uh, closed door. Yeah, yeah, legal advice on how to allocate money and how to have it. I still remember an official told me one time, of course, I said that behind closed doors. If I had said that in a public session, I would have gotten sued. <laughs> um, I, I've heard the Riverhead Town Board several times, like members of the board say, say things in public about what they're going to do in private that's totally illegal. And it's, they're saying it at a public meeting. And you're like, I can't believe you guys really don't know this by now. But like with the school boards and the, and the other boards, the, the personnel are changing all the time. You have to re-educate all the time. And I think that's part of the reason why having the financial uh, hit to the individual's pocket could be effective. It makes a huge difference. I found that yeah. I, I started my career in Pennsylvania where they had uh, a law that actually had criminal penalties if you violated the Sunshine Law there uh, or the FOIL law. And to be able to stand, I, I did it at least once where uh, a board was going into an executive session illegally and I said, I stood up at the meeting and said, just be aware that if you, I believe this is an illegal uh, meeting and I think I would like to see a vote of the board uh, to, to go into this executive session illegally and be aware that there are criminal penalties. And it stopped it right there and that they did not go into an executive session. And I mean, it, it adds a, a real level. And, and to be clear to people out there who may not be familiar with these laws, they're sort of interconnected. And to sum them up in a sentence, the Sunshine Law says you have a right to see not just laws being made, but all of the deliberations that go into those laws being made. You have a right to see the sausage being made. Uh, it, you don't just have a right to see the sausage coming off the assembly line. And there are exceptions, but they are rare. And the same thing with FOIL. The, the FOIL starts off with you have a right to see every single document that a government agency is working with. And then there are these exceptions, but you have to prove these exceptions. The default is you have access to it. So, Chrissy, you know, you're talking about draft documents. The minute a board is discussing a document, it's a public document. That's settled law. And when when these boards fall back on, on not giving those up because, well, we're not ready to show that yet. Well, it doesn't matter if you're ready. Uh, the law says you have to. I don't think that's nefarious. I think it's just people don't know the law. And so, um, I, but I think Fred's legislation adding teeth to these laws will be incentive for board members to learn the law a, a little more uh, effectively. But we would still have to go through legal processes to, to challenge um, to challenge those decisions, discussions, rejections, you know, whatever, in order for that that um, civil penalty to be imposed. So there's still going to be 
a challenge. Even if this law is passed, it's not, there's not, because there's no enforcement arm, as, as Denise said, I mean, it's still a matter of us having to, um, you know, to, to file a suit and having a judge come back and say, yes, they should have, uh, they should have given you that, that information and I'm going to find them. And so, it has to be a state Supreme Court suit. It's right. an article 78. So, yeah, that's so uh, there are, you know. still, it's not perfect, but I think it does at least uh, offer a cudgel um, when we're out there fighting uh, these battles. And Chrissy, I, I think you you touched on it. We fight these battles all the time, don't we? We do. And, you know, there you would think that each time you go through that ordeal with a particular municipality or public district or fire district or school board, um, there might be that experience that benefits the next time you do it. But Beth brought up a good point that there's always a change of personnel. There's, there's, there's turnover and institutional knowledge is lost. And, you know, maybe that next time you're seeking that information, you might face the same battle all over again with a different group of people. And, you know, but one thing I wanted to bring up was you mentioned the past um, lawsuit that, the press filed in Southampton against the school district when you were looking to get the settlement documents. I totally 100% believe that that set a precedent on the side of journalists for um, open, like compliance with the open meetings law because literally two weeks ago in Springs, we had the same issue where there was a public official who left the district, got a settlement, a financial settlement and the district dragged its feet, like Denise was saying, two months, three months later, the FOIA request gets fulfilled because, and it was a, almost exactly the same situation. There was something that happened spurring the settlement. This district denies the documents. Later on, years later, now we have a district that supplied it after a long period of time. But I got those documents. I know you guys did too. And we both published stories you know, pertaining to the settlement. And I think that, you know, that's one example of where precedent comes in. It's heartwarming to hear it might have had an effect to be to be fully to be fully clear. Our victory in that lawsuit was sort of muted. We, we didn't win uh, all the way. We, we won sort of a partial victory and we did obtain enough. I think the courts did rule that the district had to share some of those documents with us. Uh, we didn't get everything and we didn't get what we really do think. We, we didn't win 100 percent in that case. But I, it goes to the point, if you have the threat of a fine, if you have journalists who are willing to fight these fights, I think it's it has an effect. It has a ripple effect. Denise, is that fair? I mean, I think I think these boards all pay attention and they see what happens in, in other I think cases. Having a threat of a civil penalty like that will make people pay attention. Of course, they need to know that somebody's going to be able to, um, you know, do something to enforce that. And um, I think that once people do, that they will uh, stand up or sit up and pay attention more. Um, but um, that can only that can only help. I think it can't hurt. Um, and uh, bravo for Fred, to Fred for for doing that. And I hope that uh, it passes and is signed uh, into law by the governor, who is not exactly Mr. Sunshine. It's absolutely true. And that Joe, could be a real Joe. interesting. Joe, not I, I know you, you don't want to toot your own horn, but you you did 
um, work with Fred a little bit on on helping him to develop this this legislation. You at least had conversations with him about it, correct? Fred Fred deserves all the credit, though. All I did was suggest that it's something to take a look at. And, and I think I, you know, it's a simple request. Um, and I think he, I, you know, honestly, I think everybody who looks at those laws agrees that they're good laws with no teeth. They just have no, no mechanism to enforce. And, and because of that, that wasn't any great insight I had. I think everybody knows that. Um, I just tip my hat to Fred Thiel for being willing to, to take the issue on finally. It's, it's been an issue for my entire career as a journalist and all of yours as well, I'm sure. Um, uh, New York's laws could be much better. And I think this is a step in that direction. And I think that's important for citizens, not just journalists. I think people need to understand that. The, the and, records and, access thing. I'm sorry, Beth. Go ahead. Uh, well, um, I mean, and and this is difficult enough for us to navigate as working journalists, but this is something that the members of the public have should no be able to navigate themselves for information that they need. I mean, um, my partner is in contract to buy a piece of property, and the sellers won't give him the health department documents for the permits that they have, and. And he's like filing foils with the health department. They're bumping it to the county executive's office, which says to him, you know, COVID, 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 and we'll get back to you in May. Restricting access is, is one of the ways. I mean, and remember that we're talking about local governments that have had corruption We've had experience with corruption in Southampton town. There are high profile decisions being made that make a lot of money for a lot of people. We need to have sunshine on, on all that stuff. And so I think we're all pulling for that legislation to, to be in place. So let's uh, begin to wrap up and, and maybe start looking forward. I'm curious to know, we call it next week's headlines, but as Bill pointed out to me before we went on the air, Denise is really in a sort of everyday uh, being, being a, a news website, uh, maybe a little misleading. So I guess I'm saying over the next week, what are we, what are we looking at? What stories are we working on for the next week? Denise, what are you working on? I'm thinking about this afternoon. I don't <laughs> I'm attending the uh, environmental roundtable at noon today. I'm sure other people here will be covering that as well, which is something that uh, the state lawmakers always hold. And um, that's, you know, it's often an interesting discussion about a lot of really important issues to us here on the East End. Um, Senator, Senator Palumbo is keeping that up. That was something that Senator Laval did for for years. And uh, Senator Palumbo is continuing that. I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're always keeping an eye on what's going on the COVID front. I mean, I don't know. And COVID certainly has complicated the whole open meetings law. I mean, that's a whole other discussion, right? Open meetings sure. and FOIL uh, access. Um, with the uh, Sunshine Week coming up, I, I would like to suggest you devote a whole show to that subject in, during Sunshine Week. <laughs> um, That's a good idea. Yeah, because maybe we can all tell war stories. That might be so because much, we've I mean, got them. It's it's just it's so important. It's like the only way to know what's really going on sometimes is to put that FOIL request in and get the documents and review it. And it's time consuming and a pain in the neck, but it's it's so important. Absolutely. Um, so I'd that love doesn't to answer some... what I'm doing in the next week. I'm sorry. But, you know, I will be I will certainly be keeping an eye, as I always do, on all of the statistics and stuff with with COVID. And, um, you know, those the variants are certainly something that are, are frightening. Um, I saw, you know, that um, that server where uh, the studies that are not peer reviewed 
are um, posted. I can never remember the name of it. It's like MedRx or something. I don't know. But um, I have it bookmarked. Thank God for bookmarks. Um, there was a study there that I'm interested to see, like, what happens with that once other people get a hold of it, that uh, we're, we're, was talking about how these variants, uh, people infected with these variants are throwing false uh, negatives on the COVID test, so that oh on the PCR test. So if, you know, those testing numbers are staying stable or going down, they might not be picking up these variants. And, wow. you know, we've got such poor ability to uh, to monitor the, the genome. Uh, you know, the genome sequencing is done so, you know, it's a minuscule amount compared to the number of positives. Um, that that's we don't a, really know what's going on with those variants. And, and that's very kind of a frightening thing. So very timely. Can't wait to see that, that. The question. Uh, Beth, 30 seconds. What you doing? Sorry. <laughs> Is that no problem? Uh -huh. um, uh, so the South Fork Wind Farm, now that um, things are, are kind of settled in East Hampton, it's going before BOEM this week, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Um, they had two hearings this week. They're having one more next Tuesday at 5. And uh, there's also something going on with this battery storage facility in Greenport. So uh, renewable energy is uh, going crazy. And uh, it's top of the top of the to do list this week. Yeah. No question. Yep. Chrissy, 30 seconds. What are you working on? Sure. Um, I'm deep, deep into school budget season already. Um, I have three um, stories for next week about local districts and their deliberations on the on the budgets involving those documents I got in my FOIL requests, by the way. Um, and I'm also gonna touch on um, a really heartwarming story about a local student who kind of like overcame a lot of obstacles to win a national coding competition, um, a Bridgehampton kid um, and uh, from a really awesome family. And um, he's just, he, he really had a, a, a wrote an accomplishment there that we wanted to highlight, give, give credit to this whiz kid. I look forward to reading that. Chrissy Sampson awesome. from the East Hampton Star, Beth Young from the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti uh, from Riverhead Local, my co-host Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. Uh, you also may want to listen to our podcast, 27 Speaks, uh, which is talking, as I said earlier, about school sports uh, and the issues there. Uh, but this has been a great conversation. Thank you, guys. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines. We'll be back again next week with another conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.